This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, so we do want to talk about kind of the evolution of health and wellness trends and how it means some of those great old standards in the beverage industry, they get a little bit of a a reboot and a little bit of an update. Let's find out what's going on specifically at Coca-Cola North America. Shane Grant is president of the Still Beverages Unit at Coca-Cola North America uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio on this Thursday. Welcome. Really nice to have you here with us. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. We do. We spend so much time talking around this table about the wellness trends that are going on, the health trends. It's really invading, I feel like, our world at large, and I think it's a good move. How is it impacting how you guys are evolving your beverages? Yeah, I mean, I think that that mega trend is core to really the strategy of our company and to some extent the transformation of the Coca-Cola company. I mean, we've said, you know, very publicly that we have a stated ambition to be a true total beverage company. And so what we call it sort of inside our building is beverages for life. And, you know, as we look at the marketplace in North America and indeed around the world, we just see enormous growth potential um, in, in us being a true total beverage company. We've obviously got really core strength in our core sparkling soft drink business and it's a vibrant business that's growing today in North America at a good rate but when we look across you know the beverage landscape water ingredient enhanced water Can't tea ignore this coffee stuff, right? I mean sports drinks I mean you know this is just we think really exponential growth opportunities and you know today specifically we're we're announcing the launch of two new brand platforms on the Powerade brand um and two new platforms that are, um, you know, we haven't had a new platform on that brand for 10 years in terms of a genuine new platform, and we're doing two of them today. Um, What's and, different? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're genuinely differentiated product. One is Power Water, and the other one we're calling Powerade Ultra. Um, and really what's behind it is, you know, if we, if we looked at the sports category, which is a massive category, I mean, it's a $12 billion segment, it's got a history of of good growth and we see that growth continuing um, what we're seeing is really these what we call sweat moments um, you know when people need an active product and, and want rehydration that consumer behavior uh, for those products is really changing but really traditional sports drinks have not right and so you know when we look at the market we think these traditional sports drinks are really only serving probably about a third of those sweat moments and we're seeing growth in, in really two places. One is sort of the more everyday sweat moments, sort of active lifestyle type occasions, running, jogging, CrossFit, maybe biking and it's all its forms. And then we're also seeing growth at kind of the high end, maybe more performance, more mm-hmm. high repetition, more intense physical mm-hmm. activity. And so that's really the logic of the two platforms. We've got Power Water, which is a zero calorie, zero sugar, um, ion four electrolyte system, B vitamin, water-based sports product. And then at the other end of the spectrum, something called Powerade Ultra, which again is zero calorie, zero sugar, tying into that macro trend you mentioned, but with 50% more electrolytes, uh, branched chain amino acids and creatine, um, as well as the base uh, ion-4 electrolyte system. So it's um, two very different types of products, but two really innovative products off the Powerade brand. And so talk to us about that zero sugar especially, because it feels like that moment is not going away in a lot of ways. And I know it's something that you guys 
must think a tremendous amount uh, about. Mm -hmm. um, full disclosure, I grew up as a Coca-Cola kid uh, down in Atlanta. My father worked there. So like I've seen personally the, the evolution of a lot of this. Help us understand sort of the philosophy just around sugar right now at the company. Look, the zero sugar and no calorie uh, drive is real in our market. And, you know, we're, we're um, really following the consumer on that. And we're following it um, not only in a number of these new products we're launching, but also our core business. Mm. You know, if you think about our core sparkling soft drink business today, you know, the real high growth components of it are the smaller packages. So the mini cans, the small right. glass bottles, uh, but also our zero sugar options. So, you know, at a latest earnings, you would have seen Coke zero sugar continue double digit growth, both in North America and around the world. And so it's it's a growth engine in our core business. And then you look beyond that, it's forming, you know, an easily disproportionate share of the new things we're bringing to market. So, you know, you probably saw, you know, in the last few months alone, we've announced a raft of new products under this total beverage mission that we're on. And, you know, innovations like smart water flavors, uh, smart water alkaline, mm -hmm. smart water antioxidant, um, our announcement to enter with scale, this flavored sparkling water, segment uh, with a new brand called AHA, the expansion of Topo Chico. I mean, these are all zero calorie products that are very much on trend. And we're really leaning into that mm -hmm. because you're right, it's a driving force in the industry. Shane, I do wonder, you know, when we talk about great brands, global brands, Coca-Cola always is at the top of the list. And I do wonder in terms of growth, where do you guys get the most bang for your buck in terms of evolving like you do with Powerade, evolving existing brands and, you know, making them be no sugar and, you know, pumping them with nutrients because this is what the public wants versus buying those newer brands? What's what's the better play or is it going to be 50-50 of both? Yeah, look, I mean, we're always looking at the right kind of acquisitions. I mean, we've announced... Um, you yeah, know, and you guys have been a very acquisitive company, but I just do wonder, do you get more kick by taking that great Coca-Cola brand and the brands people have grown up with yeah. and making tweaks on them? And is that the future of Coca-Cola, or is it going to be a lot more of these new brands that you guys continue to acquire? The, the, the future of Coca-Cola is a true total beverage company, and that includes our core Coca-Cola brand. I mean, you know, you look... You know, certainly over our most recent quarterly announcements and our core Coca-Cola brand is growing and growing at a really good rate. And we, we strongly believe we can sustain that sort of growth on that core business for us as we shift with the consumer. And I think mm -hmm. the smaller packages, the zero sugar move, as well as just really good marketing of our core Coke Classic is still part of our growth algorithm and will remain that. And we're building on top of that, I think, much more aggression, uh, much more speed and agility in some of these newer categories. And I think you know, you see some of our announcements in water in North America that we mm -hmm. just talked about as right. I think core to that. Um, you see the announcement today in sports. Um, you know, you see us shifting into dairy. Um, and, you know, frankly, we've got more to come. You know, right. we've got a good tea business, an emerging coffee business. Right. And, you know, the more that we can view the market in that sort of really expansive way, the faster we think we can grow the business. And Shane, I do wonder about the competitive landscape. You know, back in the day, it was Coke versus Pepsi. It was pretty simple. And each of you had sort of your stable of brands and you went to war every day. And, you know, there were some outliers like a 7-Up or a Dr. Pepper. But as you look around, you know, as in every business, there are disruptors coming up, you know, it's sort of like the fintech business or the transportation business. Mm. How do you sort of look at that new competitive landscape? How do you size it up? Look, I think for us, uh, we win when we stay really focused on the consumer. And, you know, we are talking to thousands of consumers every week. We obviously have 
uh, major relationships with big retailers in this country. And so we've really focused on staying focused on our customers and our consumers. I mean, the competitive landscape, I think I would characterize beverage as one of the most hotly contested segments in CPG. Yeah. It's obviously got you know a couple of very big players, but increasingly it has a, lo- a number of kind of smaller emerging players. Mm. Um, our focus is really kind of on the end product and the end consumer. And we think you know as long as we keep the company incredibly consumer-centric and almost increasingly consumer-centric in its culture, and then build with that ever better capability around speed, agility, and our reaction, our, our, our willingness and speed to react to those consumer trends, then we're going to be just fine in terms of accelerating growth. In terms of um, CPG, is that, do you think, going to be as big as everybody expects? CBD C- or oh, CPG? What did, I, what did I just say? You said CPG. But I said, did you okay. mean CBD? I did mean CBD. <laughs> Sorry. She hasn't had it's been, any it's been a long week, yeah, and I haven't had any. But in terms of, you know the stories that have been going on for like the last year or so, and I, I feel like we watch those big consumer product companies to see if they're getting involved, and you've seen the stock react, whether or not. Um, I feel like we've had a bit of a reality check over the last few months in terms of the potential or how fast we get there. So not CPV, but what are, what are you guys and your expectations for this market? I think we've been pretty clear on our position on, on that segment. Uh, we have no plans to enter it. That position's completely Unchanged. Still, and you're going to stay there. Correct. Yeah. Because look, you know, we see the growth opportunities we've got on our core business in this total beverage landscape just as incredibly enticing. I think you know, beverage as a, you know, in consumer pra- packaged goods is probably one of the best industries to be in mm-hmm. uh, globally and also North America. So we just think staying focused on this total beverage mission, we can get fantastic growth for the company. All right, great, great to catch up with you, Shane Grant, president of the Still Beverages Business Unit at Coca-Cola North America. And maybe he will check out CPG. Yeah, CPG, <laughs> CBD, you know. There's so I thought many it was Friday C's. earlier. Yeah, it's been exactly. that kind of a week, I got it. I'm, exactly. I'm just going to say. Really appreciate you stopping by. Uh, some new products coming out, Powerade Ultra, Powerade Power Water, and Powerade Ion 4. Uh, check those out. And it's a space, as you say, Carol, we follow very We talk closely, about it all the time. Uh, sort of the broader wellness space and obviously the evolution of some of these CPG companies. Exactly. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head down to Baltimore now. Dr. William Moss is there, executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And as you might be able to tell from the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Moss, great to have you with us. Yes, thank you very much. My pleasure. All right. So you are working in a fascinating area and an area that it feels like the spotlight has shifted back to uh, over the past couple of years, especially as it relates to measles. Why is this a thing again? Yes, and you're, you're right. It shouldn't be a thing at this time. What we've seen is a resurgence of measles globally and a resurgence of measles in the United States. In 2019, there were 1,282 confirmed cases of measles in the United States. This is the most that we've seen since 1991 when we last had a very large measles outbreak in the United States. So these, these outbreaks in the United States, this resurgence of measles in the United States reflects two things. One, increased susceptibility in the population and importations of measles into the United States from other countries that are also seeing a resurgence of measles. 
Okay, so then I wonder, Dr. Moss, like what we need to be wary of, okay? Because I think we've all thought, okay, this is one of those things we have control of. So as you said, we shouldn't be too dismissive of it. So what do we as a society, as parents, uh, as coworkers, what do we need to be aware of? Yes, this is this is very important. And, and the, the fact that there's a resurgence and that we're talking about this now is really important. What we need to be aware of is that Measles is a very serious disease. It can cause death. It can cause disability. And we have a very effective, safe vaccine to prevent measles in individuals. I know parents want to do what's best for their children, but I think sometimes people can underestimate the risk and and severity of measles, the disease, and overestimate the risk of the vaccine. Um, And it's that risk-benefit ratio that we need to communicate to the public. There was just a, a Gallup poll that was released uh, very, very recently that was conducted in early December that, suggest, that, that found that only 84% of people in the United States said that vaccination is extremely or very important for their children. That's down from 94% in 2001. So we have to increase trust uh, yeah. in, in vaccines. Well, you know, it's funny, Jason and I are looking at each other because that's like a whole, that, uh, that other story where I think there is um, among some a big debate about uh, the necess- necessity of vaccines or do vaccines in themselves cause other health problems, as you well know. Uh, and it's interesting to see that that argument has certainly picked up, I feel like, over the last couple of years. And I've talked to parents who feel like that a vaccine was the cause of problems with um, their children. Yes, and that is, that is a, uh, an, unfortunately, not an un- uncommon belief. I won't say that vaccines are all 100% uh, safe. Um, there have been adverse events associated with vaccines. But I think the, there has also been a lot of misinformation about vaccines, about uh, some of the, uh, uh, the effects that they can cause that are just um, have not been documented by the science. Um, and a lot of that gets uh, communicated and, and through various platforms and the media and social media and, and kind of amplifies those beliefs. And we need to figure out um, better strategies to increase the trust in, in communities throughout the United States um, in vaccines um, and uh, how they can protect their children. And so, Dr. Moss, beyond measles, what what should we be thinking about when it comes to vaccines? Obviously, it feels like, and keep me honest here, we've gotten smarter about getting flu shots. The message seems to be uh, out there about that. But what else should we be thinking about, either for ourselves or for our kids? Mm -hmm. Yes, I I, I think we need to think about uh, the fact that these these infectious diseases, these vaccine-preventable diseases, are still around. Um, uh, still, uh, we're still seeing cases uh, around the world um, and in the United States. And until a disease is actually eradicated, like, like smallpox through vaccination, we, the risk remains real. Um, and we can't become uh, lax about uh, protecting our, our children. Um, and again, I think it comes back to weighing, to really understanding the risks of these disease and the uh, and and overstated risk of adverse events uh, related to vaccines. 
All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Dr. William Moss, thank you so much for your time today. Executive Director, International Vaccine Access Center at John, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joining us on the phone from Baltimore, Maryland, of course, Bloomberg, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and the laws, so help you God. I do. All right, that was just about 20, 25 minutes ago. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley swearing in Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts on the Senate floor to preside over the impeachment trial. So uh, another big news day out of Washington and really a big news day when it comes to American history. Those uh, impeachment proceedings expected to get underway next week. Let's get into it. Some thoughts and analysis with uh, Ryan Teague Beckwith. He's our political reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone uh, in Washington. Uh, So too is Isaac Boltanski. He's director of policy research, Compass Point Research and Trading, as I said, also on the phone from the nation's capital. Ryan, let's start with you. Um, At this point, I mean, this is, you know, pretty important in terms of our nation's history, but it'll be interesting to see. We don't really know totally what happens next or how long this trial might go on. Yeah, um, the the rules haven't yet been set, and we know that they're going to be based on the rules first written in 1986 and used in the impeachment of Bill Clinton. But they may differ in some what turn out to be key ways. Um, they, they outline sort of the stuff like you saw today. There is a very specific format to these. Um, like when, this, when they swear in, there's, it's written down what they have to say. It's very choreographed. The, um, the entire, like, you know, marching the articles of impeachment from the House side over to the Senate. Um, all of this is uh, very, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance to it. It's almost like a, a State of the Union, um, but bad. <laughs> right. That's bad for the president. Uh, the, the biggest thing that I've learned so far is that they're going to use Donald John Trump and not Donald J. Trump. That was the, the, the one question that I had, because so far this has followed the formula for how they do it. Right. So Isaac Boltanski, come on in here, Director of Policy Reads research for Compass Point Research and Trading. He joins us on the phone from Washington as well. So high drama, but we look across to another Bloomberg screen, Isaac, and we see the market going up and up and up. So is that cognitive dissonance or is this just a market that essentially doesn't worry much about what's going on down where you are? Yeah, look, I agree with you. I think that this is the definition of high drama inside the Beltway. And as Carol intimated, I think this is historically riveting. Uh, But the reality is the impact on the market is negligible at best. And I think that's because we already know what the outcome is. There's still real questions about process and, and about what we'll hear and also what this will do for the senators who are running for the Democratic presidential nomination who won't be spending as much time in Iowa or New Hampshire. But the outcome of this particular trial is no. And so I can tell you my client questions over the past few weeks have been far more focused on things like Iran and Iowa and the details of the China trade deal than anything relating to impeachment. 
And so, Ryan, I mean, take us through the, the next few steps. Tuesday, obviously, I think is the next big day when this really kicks off. So what do we expect to hear, especially given that, as Isaac said, most people think this is a, a, a foregone conclusion. What are the wild cards here? The market's perspective, it is a foregone conclusion because the market doesn't care if, uh, you know, 59 or 57 or 53 or 48 or 30 people vote to impeach the president because he's not removed from office unless it's that magic number. Now, um, politically, that number matters. And that's the wild card for us. I think from the political perspective, I'm super curious if any Republican is going to end up voting for impeachment because I think that that will make a huge difference in the public perception of it. If Republicans hold the line and all of them vote down the line on this, then that will reassure partisan Republicans that this is a Democratic thing and that it's okay for them to dismiss it. If you have a high-profile defection, that could change the equation. Who's the possible defection here, Ryan? Are we thinking of Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski? Who is it? The, who's, who are the likely suspects here? Uh, yeah, I don't know why everyone keeps having the Susan Collins. I know. <laughs> she, she's a master at sort of like, uh, she's the J.J. Abrams of the Senate, somebody who is always promising this really cool stuff and then the ending kind of sucks. Ah. Um, she, she's like, a, she's, not, she's not going to, she's yeah. already made her decision, I think, that the only way for her to get reelected is to keep Trump's face in her state animated and that anything that would give them a chance to cry sellout is going to uh, just demolish her because she's already got unified opposition. So she's already made that bet. I don't know that the Cory Gardner's and the Tom Tillis's have necessarily made that bet yet, but I think that they're probably also leaning towards Trump got me into this. He's the only one who can get me out of it. The, The wild cards are the people who don't care. Lisa Murkowski lost a Republican primary to, you know, somebody who was really out for blood. She re-registered, ran as an independent, and won in a campaign in which she had her ads just told you how to spell her name because it was a write-in campaign. There was an ad that was just a kid spelling her name. Right, right. So she doesn't care. No one, she knows that no one can come after her. Um, So she's going to do what she wants. Mitt Romney, he's not up for election for a while. He, uh, he's a self-made man with lots of money. Right. Uh, he already staked out a position against Trump in the harshest possible terms. Trump doesn't like him, doesn't have any use for him. Right. He's not. Con- he's already run for president and lost, so he's also in a position where like, he doesn't care. It's, this isn't going to hurt his chances at the nomination one day. So he yeah. can do what he wants. If hey. there's any two that I'd be watching, it's them. Okay, good to know. Hey, Isaac, we saved you 45 seconds. Um, I don't know. What are you going to be watching as this progresses? What will you be telling some of your clients? Sure. I think about three things, and and let's stick with the J.J. Abrams, perhaps, uh, surprise ending. I think there are also some Democrats that you should be watching in the Senate as well. Um, You have Doug Jones in Alabama, who is up for re-election, and you have three other red state centrists, uh, Manchin, Tester, and Cinema. I'll be watching them to really gauge where the conversation is, and I think that that could provide some intrigue. Number two is is the process, and Ryan, yeah. I think he's absolutely right. We don't we don't know what this is going to look yeah. like and how long it's going to last. And number three is 
what does this do for those senators, Warren, Sanders, Klobuchar, who are, yes. you know, right. running for the presidential I, nomination and have to spend the day silent, which we all right. know senators hate. Yeah, not, e- not even uh, able to text from their phones. That's all right, Isaac Boltanski, Director of Public Policy Research over at Compass Point Research and Trading. Ryan Teekbeck with Political Reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you both so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Just country boys and girls getting down on the bar. So phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal, it calls for China to make $32 billion in new purchases of agricultural products. So what does this mean for American farmers? Carter Malloy is founder and CEO of Acre Trader on the phone from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Carter, nice to have you here. Um, You know, we haven't had a chance to really explore this aspect of the trade deal as deeply as we'd like. So give us an idea. Is this this trade deal, does this make a difference to farmers? Yeah, absolutely so, Carol. We're we're very excited here in the in the ag community. Uh, you know, we're looking at upwards of forty billion of of ag purchases. That's uh, I think U.S. ag probably comes out as the largest relative winner of this phase one deal, uh, and and we're talking about very significant uh, volumes of of product we'll be selling here in the next few years. So so yeah, I think the the excitement uh, among the farmers we speak to, we, we speak to hundreds every week here at Acre Trader, and uh, it's it's palpable right now. We're, we're feeling a lot of energy in the industry. So, Carter, help us understand from a farmer's perspective the economics and the economic impact of tariffs. There's a lot of debate that's essentially sort of academic or journalistic, I dare say, about tariffs. Are they good? Are they bad? I mean, this is something that you and and folks you talk to every day feel very acutely day to day. What does it look like on the ground? Sure. So I think to, to your point, there's, there's a lot of debate uh, over the impact. But, but the fact is, here in, in ag and in farming, we've dealt with low commodity prices now for going on five years. So the tariffs certainly didn't help, um, but, but uh, it's been, been tough for quite a while. Uh, and so when we look at the, the volume implied of, uh, of purchases here, up, upwards of $40 billion, for, for some context, uh, we peaked uh, selling about $30 billion of ag products to China in 2013 and 2014. And that was when prices were much, much higher. So just the sheer volume implied here is is, is really exciting. Uh, I think there's still plenty of worries about this only having a, a two-year agreement and, and how we, uh, as, a, as a nation, put in place uh, the proper enforcement mechanisms to ensure Beijing's compliance. Uh, but, but suffice to say, it's... Uh, it, the, the impact is, is quite a positive one for farmers here in the U.S. What does it mean globally? Brazil certainly picked up some of the slack when it came to soybeans as a result of the U.S.-China trade spat. What will it do for pricing for farmers? Yeah, I, I think uh, we've we've seen a little rally in commodity pricing here recently uh, in, in anticipation of this phase one deal. Uh, and, and so the, the pricing is, is, you know, it feels stable right now, though, uh, I think for us, you know, and importantly, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not a pure commodities expert. We, we focus on land, and when, when we zoom out and look at U.S. farmland as an asset, uh, we remain very bullish over the long term for, for appreciation potential there. All right. So tell us about your business, because I feel like that's a really interesting economic yeah. indicator in its own right, sort of investing uh, in farmland. Help us understand what you do, who your customers are, and how business is going. Absolutely. So uh, Acre Trader is an online investment uh, company, so you can go on and create an account in, in just minutes and begin investing in high-quality U.S. farmland. Uh, I think, you know, probably one of the first questions is, why would you invest in land? That sounds awfully boring. Uh, it's, it's, it's soil, and that's about it. Ah, but it's a limited. Uh, if, you, if you just go to basic supply and demand, there's a limited supply, ultimately, of land. And, and actually, because of climate change, it's getting less and less, I feel like. 
Uh, Carol, you're, you're doing the pitch for me. That's awesome. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. When we step back and we look, look um, at long-term, you know, ignore the near-term fluctuations in commodity prices and, and look at the long-term trends, it's pretty simple. There's long-term upward inflationary pressure on commodity prices. We need to nearly double food production by 2050, uh, and we have a physical limitation in the supply of land. In fact, in the U.S., it's shrinking. We're losing three acres per minute in, in the U.S. Uh, so, so we see land as the opportunity to play long-term commodity inflation. Uh, you know, you, you get a rent check every year from the farmer, and, and in addition, you, you get appreciation in land underneath it. This is fascinating. Uh, so, when we talk about alternative assets, so, so an investor comes to you, gives you some money. Um, they don't have to actually farm the land or do anything. You guys do all of this. My understanding from your website is that you're looking at about 11.5% average annual return. Is that the returns that you have realistically seen over what time period? Great question. So we, we've seen for the last 30 years, which is since it's been really closely tracked, um, you know, you, well, let me back a little bit. You make money two ways in farmland, appreciation plus the rent that the farmer pays you uh, to, to farm on that land. Those two combined for the last 30 years have been almost 12% uh, compounded, uh, so, so pretty incredible investment returns, uh, especially when you consider that it's unlevered. Uh, so that's without using debt to amplify the returns, and, and as a result, uh, you get far lower volatility in the price movements of, of land. It tends to be slow and steady up and to the right. So it's, it's uh, again, very boring, but uh, boring is good, and, and we're, we're excited about it. It's what we do every day, all day here at, at Trader. All right, Carter Malloy, we really appreciate it. Founder, Chief Executive Officer of Acre Trader, joins us on the phone from Fayetteville, Arkansas, former investment banker, yeah. uh, getting back into the family business with a twist, it feels like. And what a fascinating, as you say, alternative investment, but obviously seeing this trade war from a completely different perspective, right. certainly than we hear from, you know, sort of policy experts uh, and, you know, journalists and whatnot. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. It is time for the drive to the close. Just got about 10 minutes left in today's trading day. Doug Sioka is back with us, Chief Executive Officer Partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $775 million in assets under management on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. Doug, really nice to have you back uh, with Jason and myself. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you guys. Hey, so uh, interesting day. We've got another rally underway. We've got impeachment proceedings. We've got a China trade deal, at least phase one. I, I have to say, when I knew you were going to be on, I'm like, I'm going to ask Doug. I mean, there's a lot of farmers in Kansas, right? There are a lot of farmers <laughs> in Kansas. There sure are. It's still a major, and it's the primary industry in our state. So, is, so this trade deal, I'm just curious about the conversations you've been hearing in and about town about the trade problems, what kind of problems that created for your state's farmers and that getting a phase one done, is it a significant, you know, does it have a significant impact uh, on those folks? It, it really does, Carol. I mean, it's pretty far-reaching ramification. I mean, it, we, where we sit in Leewood, Kansas, we're, we're a good bit east of the ag belt. Yeah. But we have a number of clients and pals who are farmers and ranchers, and their reaction has been uniformly constructive you know, based on yesterday's trade deal being signed. 
China is, is a very big market for Kansas farmers. In fact, they're our third largest trading partner. So when there was suspension of product flow across borders, even though much had been made about the tariffs being equal and offsetting, they really were not. So there was a lot of product that did not uh, get shipped that uh, was ended up being wasted and dormant, and, and that does. I mean, that, that, that reverberates back through the economy. So this was, uh, in many respects, considered a, a very large blessing yesterday. I want to bring you one headline just uh, quickly across in Bloomberg now. Facebook's WhatsApp backing off a plan to sell ads. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about monetization mm -hmm. of data and whatnot. Uh, we'll get a little bit more on that. That's a headline courtesy of Dow Jones, uh, a redhead crossing the terminal right now. So let's talk a little bit about what happens in 2020, maybe some specific sectors, Doug, that you're excited about, some that you're not so excited about. I mean, what do you do in a market that seems to be going up and up and up, regardless of what's happening to your local farmers, regardless of what's happening in Iran, regardless of what's happening on Capitol Hill when it comes to impeachment? What's the ultimate investment strategy here? Yeah, I, and I think, Jason, it's, it's critical to just maintain balance. I mean, I know it's as boring, and, and often it's decried that that 60-40 portfolio and asset allocation really don't make any sense in current environments and just buy the market and stay passive. And, you know, I think what was really a nice vindication in 2019 is the 60-40 portfolio, fixed equity to fixed income, had its best year since 1997. And there is an underlying benefit in diversification. I think the second half of diversification and being a responsible asset allocator is to rebalance. Yeah. And while you can say, "Great, yeah, we're going to buy, we're going to sell, we're going to sell high," what can we buy low? And that is critical because there are not a lot of sectors and stocks that are necessarily blinking that they are on sale. Right? A lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked. However, there are a number of sectors last year that did not participate in the market's rally. Two of the three were pretty constructive on energy. So energy, we're not. I mean, <sighs> it's interesting, Carol, okay. I think. And, and we're not. I mean, while ag is a big industry, so is energy here in Kansas. Yeah. But, you know, we really feel like the abundance of fossil fuels and some of the alternatives that are taking market and mind share are limiting some of the age-old profitability of some of the more uh, in-place uh, competitors and players that we're not sure where the profits are really going to fall because they're going to be so widely distributed. No single subsector of energy really sticks out to us as being super attractive. And so what do you worry about the most then, especially as we were talking about in a market that seems pretty, I mean, resilient seems to be the understatement of the year. Yeah, we worry about the melt up, right? I mean, and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting to go through last year and as awesome as returns were, and, and part of their awesomeness was just how unexpected they were coming out of a year that ended like 18. And I think when we look at what catalyzed the optimism that obviously manifested itself in an incredibly uh, strong uh, stock market, was more than anything, the cost of money that's set by the Fed is stable. And if anything right now, it may even go lower. So when we go through this dissection of the melt-up, looking for places to prospectively take profits, right, we're trying to differentiate between what is the substantiated price based on elevated future profitability versus pure speculation. 
And that's where it's very difficult. Now, certainly earnings are getting out of the gate very well, particularly in financials. That is a sector that we really like. Yeah. We think that had been discouraging investment because the perception of low loan demand and, and negative or low uh, net interest margins, that could be a sector that really does well, not only on its own merits, but certainly the beneficiaries of consolidation. All right. So, so does that, that – so wait, Doug. So does that mean that's where you would commit some new money? I mean, financials did well last year, but right, in comparison to – you know, information technology, all those big tech names and a few sure. others, they were kind of in the middle of the pack overall when you look at kind of main industry groups in the S&P 500. Is that where you would commit new money? We would, yeah. Okay. And, and also in healthcare. You know, healthcare yeah. is a political punching bag, both sides of the aisle, obviously. I saw a really interesting illustration that uh, was put out by BlackRock earlier in the year. They, earlier in the month, they do something called a, a student of the market piece. If you guys haven't seen it, it's fantastic. It, it talks about healthcare stocks versus healthcare funds. And actually, over the last five years, how 55% of all healthcare stocks have lost money, stock prices. So only 45% have seen appreciation of their stock prices, yet 96% of healthcare funds have made money, right? They've seen a total return in their fund or ETF. Like to us, that's an interesting weighting bias that's transpired that mm -hmm. may leave some opportunities because of, of a lot of overlooked subsectors in healthcare. All right. Uh, most important question. Your Chiefs, I believe, are a seven and a half point favorite uh, going into the AFC championship. How are you feeling about that? I feel great. I, you know, I, the, the spread last week looked extremely dicey. They were eight, and I think eight and a half going in against Houston. They spotted them 24 points and somehow they were able to cover. The entire town is on fire. I mean, there's so much community pride in this team, and the whole town has just been talking about it all week. I got to tell you, it has to take something very special for someone in the investment business to embrace the color red. Yeah. But the Chiefs are just that team. And also to think about the idea of being outside when it's six degrees. All right, Doug Sioka, CEO and partner of Kavar Capital Partners, joining us on the phone from Kansas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.